This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk. Today we have a very, very special guest. His name is John Hart. I've been talking to him in a, in a number of years. And his new book, which we've been breathlessly awaiting, is called The Unwilling. And he's here to talk about it. Hello. Yeah, hey, David. Thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm laughing, but it's sort of like a delayed reaction. <laughs> yeah, there's something about being on the air after, you know, when something's recording that's kind of... I don't have people on TV. Do they make it look so easy, you know? I guess, oh, man, I've, I've heard your show before. You you make it look easy, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like... But it's like once that light goes on, you're like, oh, my God, now I have to speak, you know? <laughs> it's a little daunting sometimes. Well, we're going to rock on through that. I'm we gonna... are. So this this is your newest book, The Unwilling, and, and I, I must tell you, it's riveting. And I'm just you know, sitting here uh, the last few days just reading it and, and just enjoying it immensely. Uh, did this book take a long time to write? You know, I, I tend to run in these wild swings of how long it takes. Uh, you know, the shortest amount of time I've ever spent was 11 months uh, to ride downriver. It took me, you know, three or four years to ride Redemption Road, and including a, a year's worth of work that I ended up scuttling after 300 pages that I just weren't good enough. That, that was a hard blow. This one was actually uh, in the sweet spot, I would guess probably about 15 months of concerted effort. You know, I wish I could do it more quickly. I'm, you know, my publishers have been very gracious. They don't pressure me. You know, they, they very correctly say they'd rather have the, the right book um, at a slower pace and the wrong book quickly. So probably, you know, probably 15 months. So you're not in Nora Roberts. I swear that woman writes like a book a month. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. I mean, it's uh, it's either, I don't think it's a work ethic thing, although that could be part of it. I, I just need time to, to go deep enough to find the characters that I want and the stories that link up the way I like. And, you know, power to those guys. Uh, they, they can really do it quickly. It's just not not the way my wheelhouse is. I don't know. That's that's what makes this book so wonderful, the characters. As you're reading the book, you're, oh, I hate that character. And you're really feeling these intense emotions about these characters. And, and another character, you're like, wow, how stupid are you? You know, things like that. And, <laughs> and you're saying this stuff in your head, and you're like, am I crazy? Why Why does this all feel so real to me? That's that, But that's what you have to be good at, and you are good at it, is making a story real. It, it's got to feel real. It can't feel like it's... Like it's made up. It can't. It's got to feel. It's got to have that sense that you you know somebody like this. You know some of these characters to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. No, look, that, that's a big part of what I I work very hard to do, and it's what I enjoy about fiction is creating these people that are, you know, real enough that you can get down in the dirt with them and understand uh, why they're down in the dirt, or you can, you know, go the opposite direction and understand why they're joyful, elated, uh, thrilled. Um, but if the if the reader can't feel these characters in a meaningful way, they can't um, appreciate or participate in uh, sort of the growth arc of the character. And I think that's so important. The, the story arc has got to be strong, right? It's got to be the kind of thing that pulls you through the pages. But at the end of the book, what I really want is for at least the main characters to have changed in some meaningful way and done so in uh, a manner that 
affects the reader, meaning that whether they hate the guy, love the guy, uh, whatever, you know, they, they feel like they understood the journey, took part in it, so that the people that they leave at the end of the book are not necessarily the same that they were when they first met them. And it's the, for me, it's always the characters that I remember years later, uh, even when I've lost the story arc. If I read a Pat Conroy novel, for instance, I always remember those characters long after I've forgotten the plot line. And so um, I, that, that to me is just an extra richness to, to a good book, but uh, it's got to marry the, the right story. And, this is a book when you read it, you think, I wonder where the author, did the author know people like this? Did the, how, what is this? And, you, and you're, you have this intense curiosity to know how this story formed, and, and did it form based on something that happened to the author? So that's my question to you. Is this based on something that you went through? Okay, can I just say how remarkable that question is? Because, uh, you know, I'm early in this process of releasing the book. Uh, you're the third interview I've done and the second interviewer to ask that question. And it's, it, I, I didn't, why that is, I don't know. Um, but apparently I did something right so that Something is, you know, banging a gong that makes readers think perhaps I actually, you know, experienced something like this or knew something like this. And uh, no is the short answer. Um, you know, there's always that line between what's real in the author's life and what's pure imagination. And, you know, this book is set in 1972. It deals with people damaged by the war, people damaged by prison, uh, people trying to figure the path through all these difficult times. And I've, I've never experienced anything like that. That said, I think that um, the true gift of any uh, writer of fiction, it has to be an empathetic soul that you can strap on these shoes or those and deeply feel what that must be like. And, um, but, but, you know, I don't, I don't outline, I think we may have talked about this in, in an early interview. Mm-hmm. I kind of make these stories up as I go. And so as I write these characters and they evolve and grow more deeply, at the same time, I'm finding the story to, um, you know, bend them around or the axis to, to twist them along as the, the pages turn. And if it works, and I think it really did in this book, the characters and the story start to feel organic uh, in really meaningful ways. And I'm not smart enough to have that figured out when I sit down on page one, but as I live and breathe these people, it, it kind of happens that way. So but I'm, I'm but delighted I, that that's your response. Right. But what I'm, what it, what it, it interests me more, and I hear what you're saying, but I, I feel like that because of what I've, I've read in this book, that you know, you know characters that in real, you know people in real life that sort of have some of these qualities, and that's where you get. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. Okay. So I'll give you a couple examples. So, uh, you know, the main character of the book is this 18-year-old kid, uh, Gibby, who's about to graduate high school. He's got a college deferment from the Vietnam War, but he's considering enlisting because his brothers fought, his dad was a Marine, and he's on the horns of this dilemma. And he's got this best friend, Chance, who, you know, looks like the perfect best friend. I mean, he's he's tough, he's fearless, he's got your back, but, you know, Chance carries these deep fears. He's terrified of the war. He hides his fear of going. Uh, I, I describe it as the secret of his schoolboy shame. You know, I, I knew I knew kids like that that were, you know, really tough on the outside, but broken and, and afraid on the inside. And, you know, Gibby's girlfriend, Becky, is, you know, kind of the, the girl that every high school boy just would love to know. And, and I knew some girls like that. And then you get into the older brothers, one who fought and died in Vietnam and one who fought and came back damaged. I don't really know those guys so much. I mean, we're talking about war, prison, heroin, motorcycle gangs, all, all the, the elements that this one older brother brings home with him. 
I didn't know those kids, but I, you know, I set the book in 1972. I was seven years old in 1972, but I do remember kids, older boys that were scared to death of the draft and of the war. Um, and then when you get into the family dynamics, you know, I, I've definitely known some of this. I mean, you've got, you know, this, you probably, I shouldn't assume you probably know this about me, David. I, I often have family elements in my books and, and that's because I find family endlessly fascinating. So, you know, the, the, the broken parent, the, you know, distraught spouse, the whatever, you know, we can all relate to these dysfunctional families and I have a lot of fun writing them. Uh, I think my family still gets a lot of, grief from their friends wondering just how messed up our family really is but but if you're thinking of a specific character um you know tell me tell me who you're thinking of and i, I can answer more specifically well it's just that these characters i mean some of them i mean tyra for instance i mean tyra is is so i mean you feel like she's run of the mill but she's really not and she had such a a violent streak to her and, and you know you oh, just feel yeah. like you feel like yeah. he must have known somebody like that in his life. That, oh yeah, no, that, no, I'm, you're, no, you're you're picking a good example. So Tyra is this. Um, you know, she's 27. She's sexual and she's cruel and she's selfish. Uh, you know, and she's got money and she doesn't care about consequence and she'll play with uh, you know people's emotions and she doesn't really care whether it's a man or a woman as long as she gets what she wants. And that's how she lives her life. And, you know, it kind of catches up with her in this book. I mean, she's the first person to die and she dies hard. And it's a direct ripple effect from this sort of venereal cruelty that we're talking about. You know, she's in a convertible with these two brothers and um, she's drunk and she decides to taunt the prisoners on this prison transfer bus. And so she does a little striptease show and causes a riot and a bloody beat down on the bus and two days later uh, is found brutally murdered. Okay. Did I know, have I known people like that that are that selfish uh, and shallow? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. I, I could probably name six of them. Do you think any of them will re realize it from reading? <laughs> no, I don't. You know, no, no. Nobody ever recognizes, and I'm guilty of this too, but none of us see our, ourselves the way we really are. I mean, sometimes it's really bad, uh, that discrepancy, and sometimes it's mild. And, and of course, in Tyra's case, it's a, the way she perceives herself is a very huge discrepancy from how she is. So I don't. Tyra wouldn't recognize that about herself, and I don't think most real people would either. She had to be. She had to be hysterically fun, right? I mean, just oh my gosh, she was outstanding. I mean, that that scene when they're at the lake and skinny dipping, and she's just she's just like, come on, big boy, you know. And she's out in front of a friend and this eighteen-year-old kid. She doesn't care. I mean, she's naked and happy, and she's gonna have her way with this kid right out of prison, uh, no matter what. It's the same thing when she gets around these prisoners. You know, she doesn't think beyond the moment. Uh, there's no sense of consequence. And, I, of course, people like that, I mean, consequences are real in, in, in every scale. So, um, yeah, but she was super fun to write because, you know, I, I do feel like I know people like that. And, of course, she's really, you know, sexual and uh, attractive and cool. And those are all kind of wonderful traits to write. I, mean, but the, I wouldn't but, want to marry the girl, but, but she's fun to write. But the amazing thing is, when after she does die, we, we miss her terribly. It was like, oh, wow, where is she? I want her back. To, you, you feel that sense that, I, that that strong character, what else is she going to get up to? What are, This woman is just relentless and would never yeah. let up. <laughs> yeah, no, no, she, she was a fun character to write. 
And look, that happens a lot. I'll come up with a character that seems like it's going to be a, a bit player, and they end up just invading the story and taking a big chunk of space that I didn't intend for them to inhabit. But it's so great when it happens because those are usually the most interesting characters. And, and I'll give you an, uh, an example in the heart of the book. You may have noticed, uh, so the, the story ostensibly belongs to Gibby, this 18-year-old boy. In fact, I write him in first person, and everybody else is in third person. Right. And his, his brother Jason comes home after three tours in Vietnam, a dishonorable discharge, prison heroin, gun running, all this stuff. And he's third person, and in my mind, he was going to be a little more secondary. But you know, by the time I started writing him, he was like Tyra, this compelling guy to write and just utterly fascinating and the way i love about how he turned out is that um you know we we see little bits of information that, that give us ideas of who he is and what he's all about and it turns out we're pretty much wrong by the end of the book no, none of us really understand who this guy is and what makes him so uh, powerful a character i didn't really anticipate him being in many ways the heart of the book i thought it was a little brother I mean, I think they cohabitate that place, but but he's like Tyra in that he's just visceral and raw and a ton of fun to write. And Jason himself, Jason's pretty self-centered, too. I mean, he's all about, he seems to be all about him. Now, I, I haven't finished the book totally, but I'm still, I'm still uh, going my way. No, this is good though. I'm glad that you said that because I, and, and please, uh, ping me when you, when you get to those last pages because I think you'll find that Jason is not who you think he is. And, um, that's what makes him such a compelling character. You get to the end of the book, you know, the last few chapters and you realize why he is the way he is and, you know, how he's suffered and the secrets that he's kept and the sacrifices that he's made and what he's willing to do, uh, for the people that he loves. And suddenly you're like, holy crap, this guy's, this guy's awesome. And uh, you didn't see it coming. At least I wrote it so that you wouldn't see it coming. I hope it works that way. Well, that's interesting. Now I can't wait to read to finish reading the book. <laughs> like... Yeah, no, please, please do because I, I tell you, you know, every every everybody that I've talked to about this this character, about everyone I've discussed Jason with, they're all the same. Oh my God, I just didn't know what to make this guy. And by the end of it, I just he's my favorite character ever. Um, so uh, I hope you'll see it that way. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I'm definitely more and more intrigued the more I hear you talk about that. I, I did not expect that. So, I, I but, but did this when you're writing this book, and you're writing, and it's 350 pages. But is it is it a struggle for you to write? Is it easy for you to write, or do you find yourself like, oh, I, I can't wait to get back to writing? How, how did it feel as you were writing it? It's an up and down, right? I mean, because there's so much of the zen that goes into it. I mean, if you're in the right place mentally, you can just do great things. And if you're distracted or troubled by other things in life, it's tricky. Um, you know, I, I would say I've learned a couple lessons in my time uh, as a keyboard. One is that I have a grave distrust of what feels like inspired writing. I, I often usually go to bed excited, wake up the next day and wonder what I was smoking and, and need to change things. Um the, this book, I don't, none of them can't come easily. Uh, I was never at a loss of where to go with, with this book. You know, sometimes I get to 200 pages in and I've got to pause for three or four weeks and really figure out exactly what I'm doing. This one, it just tracked. So whenever it's tracking character story, voice, all those things, and it's real easy to get up excited and, and just plow. And that can't, but that can't be easy. It's gotta be, I mean, it's, it's gotta, like you said, I mean, you're up and down. You, you don't, you think you have it and then you think, what, what do I think? Am I really a writer? And then, and even after all the books that you've written, you still get, and it's interesting, you feel, still feel that way sometimes. 
Oh, absolutely, and, and I'll put a I'll put a real price tag on it. So uh, you know, when I was starting my fifth book, I'd you know won two Edgars, I'd written four bestsellers, and I start this fifth book, and I think I've got it figured out. I think I know what I'm doing. You know, a year later, I've written 300 pages, spent God knows how many hours, and I realized that it sucks. And, you know, and I called my publisher and said, I'm missing my deadline. I'm scrapping this. I'm starting all over. And I crawled into a dark hole for about three months until I found the will to get out and start a whole different book. And that's what became Redemption Road. And that took two uh, two years and change to write. So my point is that knowing the true cost of uh, a swing and a miss, it, it really makes the stakes real, right? So I know that if I screw it up, I'm giving up a year of my life, and I'm having to start over. And so um, when you get into a down cycle and you don't trust what you're doing and everything looks bad, then it, it, it gets really dark and deep because, you know, you go to your trusted people, and no matter how much you trust them, you know that they're looking out for your feelings and they're trying to tell you what you need to, to hear to be motivated and to keep going. And, you know, the only person that is capable of grim brutality with me in this writing is my wife. She'll tell me if I'm screwing the pooch. Um, and so I, I, I trust it when she says it's working. But, yeah, no, it, it's, um, you know, this is book seven, and I hope it hits the list. I don't know. I don't want to jinx anything. But with six bestsellers, you'd think that I'd feel sanguine, and I don't. Uh, and show me a writer that, that wakes up every day all sunshine and unicorns, and, and I'm going to call him a liar. Right, exactly. It, it just seems like some writers, uh, you read them, and you're like, oh my God, they, they make it look so easy. I mean, because it, it, it flows so nicely. And your book, I mean, uh, yeah, chapter by chapter, it just gets more and more intense, and you're thinking, what is going to happen here? Do I... And the, and the question is, do I do I know the ending already, or is it going to shock me? And for what you're telling me, it's going to shock me, and I and I enjoy that. I don't want to know the ending before I've even reached the ending. Well, I, I'll tell you this: um, I, I, I'm very confident you're going to love the ending of this book. Um, I, I really think that this this is the hard math for novelists. You can write 90% of a novel. It can be the best damn thing you've ever written, and people can sing its praises and write essays about how wonderful it is. But if you whiff the last 10% of the book, it doesn't matter. The ending has to stick. It's like a gymnast. If they if they flub the ending, the whole exercise is moot. So I, I spend a lot of time making sure that I deliver on those endings. And I'm human, right, so I'm not perfect. But it's the most important part of the book, bar none, because if, if people put down the book and say, oh, my God, I didn't see that coming, or, oh, my God, I mean, I, I can't stop thinking about it, you know, they're going to talk about it. If, they, if they're the opposite, you know, eh, it's just not what you want. And a lot of authors are saying good things about this. David Baldacci has something on the back here, and, and Tammy Ho's got a nice, real nice thing. And you've got people that really love your writing. They're, I mean, this isn't this. They, they wouldn't say these things unless they were true. I mean, why? You would have to. You can't, you know, say, I love a book and then not love it. I mean, that's no, a, that, you can't because, no, you can't because then, then you, you know, people don't trust you. I mean, this, this book's going to be seen. And so if, if I, I get asked to blur books all the time, and, you know, I'm a very giving, generous person when it comes to, new writers because I know how unforgiving the business is, so I want to help whenever I can. But it's dangerous to you know, endorse a book that is not good enough because now people are going to lose their trust for you. Um, you know, my favorite quote on this book was actually the very first blurb we got was from C.J. Box. He said, you know, it was um, raw, brutal, tender, and exquisite all at the same time, which I just thought was you know, pretty awesome and more or less what I was trying to do, and, and that that's a, an easy target to miss, believe it or not, but... 
um, it, it's a it's it's a book with a lot of moving parts, and it speaks to a lot of different people. I think. But to, uh, and I really feel like to write characters well enough that they 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 leap off the page and they're in your face, and you hate them or you like them or you can't figure out what. Is such a difficult thing to do. It's so easy to write a boring character, a character that really doesn't do anything, or a character that that maybe you've written before to a, to a certain extent. But I feel like every one of your books, every character is different, and that's so hard. I mean, how do you do that? How do you make every character different and seem different? And, well, and, and seem real at the same time, and right. it, it is hard. And you know, and I've only written seven books. I mean, I, I think about people that have done 25 and 35 books and 40 books and, and how do you not cross the wires at some point and recreate the same person in one form or another you know I, I think that the key is that even if it's a terrible character meaning a, a horrible person you got to love these characters you know or don't waste your time with them so if they're if they're evil you got to love their evil and you got to have a lot of fun figuring out why they are that way and you know, for me, it's all about uh, the things that make us and things that happen in childhood and, and the scars. And if you can, like, you can't do this with every character, right? I mean, it, it'd be all backstory and people would walk away in sheer, you know, frustration. But, you know, you pick your two or three absolute most important characters and you'll find in any book I've ever written that you will know a fair amount about what made them who they are. And it's usually the stuff that happens in childhood that we all carry uh, for the rest of our lives. I mean, most of our formative work is done by the time we're 18. So I like to get into stuff like that, and um, I think it's worth the investment. And once you're that invested in a character, whether they're horrible or not, you still love them, and the love shines through. I mean, it's... Um, yeah, if you don't love that person, even if you despise them, your readers are going to care one way or another. So here's an interesting question, and maybe you you don't even want to answer this question. You, but I'm curious to uh, which character in this book you are closest to. If you had to say that you're clo- you're more like one character than another, which one would it be? So uh, okay, no, I'll, I'll answer the question because um, you know. An honest writer is someone that's not scared to put bits and pieces of themselves into the people that they write. Yeah, and um, and it's important uh, for all the reasons. I don't have to really lecture on that. I mean, just it's obvious. But so I, I, I mean, the two main characters are both bits and parts of me. So Gibby, who's this sort of overprotected, um, you know, shy, shy. Um, slightly afraid but really wants to do the right thing and wants to find his way into a meaningful adulthood and, and step up and be a man he, even if it puts his life at risk and i had a lot of that kid in me you know i mean i was a good kid and uh and i was also a bit um you know tim is not the right word but I, but i was a little over sheltered and overprotected and i can understand how that feels you know and then jason who's 27 uh i think he's or 20 no, he's younger than that. Anyway, he's five years old, 23, 24, who's done all these things. I mean, he's a warrior's warrior and a, you know, hard prisoner and, uh, done terrible things. You know, I mean, that, maybe that's a little more reflective of the adult I've become because we all get a little bit hardened as we go through the years. Um, but, you know, my main, my main rapport would be with, uh, Gibby because I, I think that I have a lot of my childhood in him. And, and I did the same sort of thing in The Last Child, uh, which was the second novel that won an Edgar with the character of Johnny Merriman, who was 13. 
uh, at the time and his best friend Jack. And you know, Johnny and Jack are both nicknames for John. And that was intentional because each of those kids had parts of me. Johnny was kind of the, the good intention, clear-eyed, selfless kid. And Jack was the one who stole his daddy's liquor and smoked cigarettes and slicked his hair on Fridays. And I always felt like I had both of those boys in me growing up. So it's fun to be able to do these things in novels. Um, and unless someone like you asks me a direct question, you know, readers don't know what's me and what's raw fiction. Well, now they're going to know, though. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't look. I don't mind sharing. I mean, I, look, I don't mind sharing. I mean, yeah. I like I like having a relationship with my readers. It's, I like to say that um, you know the relationship between a writer and, and a reader is uh, the last truly great form of intimate communication between total strangers. Because if you watch a movie and a hundred other people watch them, we all experience the same movie. Those hundred people can read the same novel and experience it very differently. Because, you know, I, I give just enough for the reader to fill in uh, the images and the expectations and all these things that make fiction so awesome. And so everybody's experience is very different. But, you know, they, they feel like uh, they have a connection to me, or at least that's my hope. And I certainly am aspiring to connect with them, and so it really is kind of a, a special thing. So I, I speak honestly about what I do. I, I'm not—I don't hold anything back. What I find interesting is the relationship between Gibby and his father, and the fact that his father is very strict, and yet he listens to his son. He doesn't, you know, totally. It's not all a one-sided thing where his father just tells him what to do and he doesn't. He he answers his father back. He's very. They're very. They have a, they have conversations where they. You almost feel like Gibby is getting the upper hand on his father. There's some. There's some. You know what I'm saying? There's some kind of a dynamic there that's that seems a little off, and yet it's interesting at the same time. Makes it so great uh, to have some family dynamic and crime fiction, you know, in these uh, suspense thrillers, whatever you want to call them. Because, you know, a we've all come from some family, whether they suck or they're awesome. You know, we we can relate. Uh, but you know, this is kind of the reality that we're talking about. I mean, Gibby's turning into a man, and his father is one of the good dads that's willing to recognize that, even though he's been part of overshadowing and overprotecting Gibby ever since the two older brothers got so screwed in Vietnam. So he knows that the kid's been um, sheltered too much, and he knows what it takes to go from boy to man. And so it, it's very much a real part of what it is to have a, a child entering adulthood. Uh, you know, I have daughters, not sons, but they're that age, 20 and 17, and, you know, I have these conversations with them, and I listen to them, and I engage uh, as as young adults, and in doing so, I'm hoping to help them you know, find the way to be an adult. And um, and I think that the dad in this book is very much like that. You know, even though he's got the responsibilities of a murder detective. Don't you? Right, and don't you feel as a father sometimes that you're the one in control, and you you're, you 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 so want to make them do what you want them to do, what you feel is the right thing to do, that you're that you that and you, you want to overwhelm them. I mean, doesn't that isn't the tendency to want to do that sometimes well i mean yeah sure i mean no, nobody wants to give up control especially i'm, I'm not a control freak but you know i, I know people who are uh, but you know, look here's the reality kids are going to outgrow their parents sooner or later and the smart parents are the ones that help them transition the, the harder you beat down a 20 year old or an 18 year old and try to make them do what you want you know, the more you're sabotaging everybody. You know, right. they're not going to learn from you how to be a good adult. They're going to resent you, and they're going to walk away, and they're going to make their own mistakes without a willingness to come back for guidance. And if you can be a strong figure 
while understanding what matters to them and also having walked the path before, you know, that the job for me right now, honestly, and this is just me as a father, is to take these wonderful girls that I've raised and, and teach them how to transition to adulthood without crushing their belief in themselves or making them resent me. And it's an easy thing to do to just say, no, it's my way or the highway. Because I'm still paying for them. They still live in my house, especially with all this lockdown business. Right. Um, but, you know, but it's complicated business. And, and that was a... Um, you know, a big part of writing the relationship between Gibby and his father because, you know, the dad, he might really be thinking he screwed up with the older brothers. I mean, I think, in fact, I would say that he is. And I think the reader can see that. And so he's he's trying to not screw up this one last shot uh, at doing it right. Exactly. Now, how old are, you, how old are your daughters? 20. Uh, my oldest is a junior uh, in college, and my youngest is a senior in high school. So they're pretty... So they're pretty, they're pretty set. I mean, they're pretty... Um, they're not, they don't sound like they're real rebellious. They're not, they're certainly not rebellious teenagers anymore. So, no, no, I mean, and, and, you know, they're, they're, they're good kids. Uh, you know, they do all the stupid, you know, teenage college stuff. And, and I understand that, but, you know, we're, we're really close and it's a trusting sort of thing. So, you know, if they get in trouble, they come to me, which is what I've wanted. And, and you know, that's a, that's a huge thing with, fa- with fathers and daughters and even fathers and sons that a bit, that, ability for the children to come to the father when there's a problem i didn't when i was when i was young i was scared that if i told my father things that he would get angry and and yeah yeah me too me too and you know that's that's maybe that's how i grew up but i mean if i when i i was having very very different sexual feelings when i was younger and i there's no way i could have told my father he never would have understood that but but that that's that fear. Those kid, these kids that are out there, they have a fear to tell their parents what they're going through, what's happening. They're afraid they're going to be rejected. There's so much of a fear of rejection that it's scary. Well, and, and that's why it's so important to to really, I mean, put some thought into this transitional stage and do it right. Because uh, you know, especially if you've really worked hard to to raise good kids, which I mean, I'd like to think that we all do. You don't want to screw the pooch at the last gasp right i mean you really this is an important time and you, you can't take it personally that they're spreading their wings anyway that maybe this is why i like to do uh you know family bits in my books i mean i'm i'm a child of divorce uh it was not horrific or anything but you know the scars are there and, and i've lived with them and i get it i mean I'm, I've, I've been all but did that make you a, any kind of a bad father i don't think so it doesn't sound like it I mean, I, shit, I don't know. Excuse my French, but I, I don't think so. I mean, I, in fact, I, I think to the contrary. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm no, look, I'm, I'm no paragon to, to tell anybody how to do it. All I know is what I've done with mine, and it's, it's been a ton of fun, and we've raised good kids, and, um, yeah, I just look forward to continue. I know. I read, I read that somewhere recently, uh, somebody who said that we're ne- none of us are really ever ready to be a father i mean we think we are but is anybody fully ready to be a father or a mother well, look maybe there's some real super genius people out there um you know and also it's maybe it's a gift that children grow slowly give us a chance to age into it um you know i, I felt like every stage that came along i was more or less ready for it it doesn't mean i didn't get caught uh, you know with my pants down uh, unaware unprepared shocked whatever um but you know generally if you just try to do the right thing and, and be strong in doing it, um, the thing that I can't stand are the people that parent now through just utter fear and weakness, like some eight-year-old kid can tell them 
what's what, and they're so scared of upsetting this kid, they just yield to everything, and the kids don't grow into good adults. And I, you know, I just feel like we've got a lot of that going on. But don't get me started. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. I, and I see a lot of the, these parents who who give their children a lot, and you think to yourself, don't give them everything, please. Don't give them everything. Let them let them appreciate what they have. And I think that there's there's. I mean, it depends on the child. Every chi- every child is different. And it has to be handled a different way. I feel. I mean, that's how I feel. I mean, I. Yeah. I mean, I I was never spoiled as a child. I was one of seven, so I, you know, I was lucky if I got the extra donut on Saturday morning. Well, it's an art, not a science, right? And so, so I'll give you an example. Like, you know, I knew kind of early that I wanted to write for a living, but there's no real guidebook to it. There's no. I mean, you can go to graduate school, but it's not a guarantee of anything. You know, an MFA program's not going to make you a, a great writer if you don't have the ability. But when did you realize you really enjoyed it? I mean, when, at what well, point did you realize this is exactly what I want to do? Well, I always I wanted to do it early on. I, in fact, I outlined my first novel when I was 20. Never got off the cocktail napkin. Um, uh, you know, I wrote my I wrote two failed novels before my first was published. I did one while I was in, in a master's program, one while I was in law school. Um, and then the book that got launched my career, The King of Lies, I wrote after being a criminal defense attorney for three years because I just couldn't stand that job anymore and wanted to take one more shot. And that's and that's quite a book. That's that's a tremendous book. Yeah, I, I, I had a lot of fun with that book. You know, it's in it's in my hometown. I was living in that house. I was I had those types of clients. But but the the bigger point I'm trying to get to is you know getting sort of tying writing into parenting. You know, my parents were always, they always encouraged me to write, but at the same time, they said, you got to pay the bill. So, yeah, write that book, outline that novel, but don't quit your job, you know. And uh, and so they were great parents in that they said, yes, artistic aspirations are fantastic, but the world doesn't owe you a living, right? It's tough love. You get out there and you work your ass off during the day and you can write at night if you want. Get up at four in the morning, do Scott Turow right on the train. Um, Does he really do that? Scott Turow? Yeah. Yeah, he wrote Presumed Innocent on his commute into Chicago on the train, you know, 45 minutes each way. You know, he, that's how he wrote Presumed Innocence. He was practicing law. And so, um, that, you know, so I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it took me 15 years to get published, and the advance on my first novel was only 7500 bucks, which isn't going to change anybody's life, um, not for a year's worth of work. Uh, but I learned something really important from my parents, which is reach for that brass ring, but make sure you, you're covering your bases along the way. Because I was 40 when that book came out. You know, I had a I had a wife, I had two children. Um, you know, I, I couldn't. And it, have done made, that. And it I, made a huge splash. So it did. Yeah, I mean, it came out of the gate like a scalded cat. You know, first novel uh, on the Times list. That doesn't happen very often. Um, nominated for an Edgar, and then the next two won uh, the Edgar. Uh, but it was the King of Lies that started it, and um, you know, and, and I remember so clearly writing that book, and, and it, that book is so reflective of my life in many ways. It's this young attorney in my actual hometown that hates being a, a young attorney in that town, lived in the house that I lived in when I wrote it. Um, you know, looked over the same park. I mean, I, I, it was all very, very real for me. And um, you know, in the second novel, Down River, I, I kept in the same county. And then I finally realized there's no winning setting a book in one's hometown. Um, you know, people get upset if they think they're in the books or if they feel they should be in the books and they're not, they get upset about that. So there's no winning um, when you set a book in your hometown unless it's L.A. or New York or something huge. Small town south is dangerous. 
So here's the here's the big question, the question that I've been asking myself ever since I heard the title of your book. Who is the unwilling? Is it? And I don't want you to necessarily give me the answer because I might give something away. But what? And I keep asking myself the, the question: Who is the unwilling? And when in this book, as I'm reading it, am I going to figure out who who the unwilling is? Uh, you know, I, I like I like titles that generally make sense at the end of the book, right? So ideally, there's kind of an aha moment. Uh, for instance, in The Last Child, you'll learn what the title means literally in the last two pages. You'll, you'll understand finally who, who is The Last Child, what is this And you did that intentionally? Uh, whenever I can do that. Some books I have the title before I write page one. That was the case in The Last Child. And uh, some books, I, I don't figure out the title until after I've written the book. Well, what about, what's the, what, what, how was The Unwilling? When did you figure out well, that title? Well, it's, it's interesting. So The Unwilling... Um, I didn't have that title when I started it. I came up with the title afterwards, and I, I was struggling with the title. Because you want it to fit, right, but you want it to be uh, compelling. And a, a writer buddy of mine said, look, if you're ever struggling for titles, just look for poetry about the subject. And so I was doing all kinds of stuff, and I was looking into poems about war. And I found a poem, uh, poem's not the right word, I mean, it's a, it's maybe a dozen words, but by an unknown soldier um, written, you know, during the Vietnam era, and uh, uh, you've caught me off guard, so I probably won't remember it, but it's, uh, we the unwilling, led by the ungrateful, um, no, led by, we the unwilling, led by the unqualified, to kill the unfortunate, die for the ungrateful. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's a lament of the Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam War American soldier, you know, he's all the problems with that war, I think it's kind of cap, you know, captured in that, that little quote. Um, so I really liked it in, in that regard, and I started thinking, does it apply to the novel? I mean, we've got Vietnam War as a backdrop. It's not a novel about the war, but about people going to war and afraid of the war and coming home from war. Um, and then I realized, you know, there are a lot of people in this novel that that term unwilling could apply to. And, uh, I mean, at least three or four. I mean, pick pick one. Uh, and you can find a way to, once you know those characters, you can find a way to make uh, the title fit them. And, and, and so it appealed to me because it, it fit the dynamic of that era, uh, the angst of that war. And also, if you really want to figure out uh, the title, you could look at any number of characters and see how it applies to them. What we did do that you didn't see in the advanced copy is we took that um, that little snippet from The Unknown Soldier and we put it in the front of the book so that the people, as they read the novel, would have that uh, unknown soldier uh, in their mind and, and could fit the pieces in as, as they saw fit. Oh, interesting. I mean, as, as you answer the question, I never know. Oh, yeah, there it is right there. I, see, I have the finished book here, so I do ah, okay. I do have the... And I, I, you know what? I was, I was, and I, so, so in a hurry to get it done and, you know, really get into the book that I didn't see that at first. So now I, now I can back. Can you, did I quote it correctly? What, is, what does it say? Do you mind? Oh, let me, I just had it open. Let me, let me open it again here. Uh, after the, uh, we the unwilling, led by the unqualified to kill the unfortunate, die for the ungrateful. What a great quote. Yeah. 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 And, and because, as we discussed earlier, it started out really being the younger brother's story, Gibby's story. And as I got into it, it became more and more of the older brother's story. This guy, Jason, who fought three tours, was considered the most uh, ferocious, decorated 
uh, Marine in Vietnam by those in, in authority, and yet when he comes home, it's under a dishonorable cloud. Um, you know, he's addicted to morphine and heroin, and his life spirals thereafter. So, you know, this is a really kind of a direct link. What happened to him in Vietnam and at these very end stages of his final tour? Why, why did things go sideways, and how does that tie into the person that we get to know when he comes back to reconnect with his little brother? Um, and, and that's why I, mean, I think you'll find, uh, David, that, that Jason is a really great character. You just need to get a little bit further in. Right now, I don't like him very much, but I now the <laughs> but I'm not supposed to in the begin in the beginning. And, no, that's right. As I get right. to the that's middle, of the, yeah, he, he he's doing some some bad things at first. Yeah, he is. He is, and he's unapologetic. He's not looking for um, understanding. He's not trying to explain himself. He's just living his life, and he has his own reasons, and you know all the things that shaped him. And you know that's again, it's about. How do you make characters that are compelling, whether you love them or hate them or in between, but then make them so real that you say, holy moly, this is just fantastic. And, and then that's how I think about this character. And then you think about Tyra and you think she's never going to have a chance to redeem herself. She'll only be what she ended up being. I mean, well, right, maybe she's the ultimate unwilling. I mean, <laughs> I guarantee she was unwilling. The way she died. She's angry so. though. That anger. You wonder where that anger comes from. Where, where that. Yeah. Well. Where that con- you know, having to control other people and and you know how did she get to be friends with Sarah, who's so totally different than she is. Well, look, there's some there's some hints about Tyra. You know, I mean, her. We know her father a little bit. I mean, he was a. Owned his own business. He was a deacon in the church. I mean, it sounds like some guy that could be pretty controlling. And you know, her rebellion, as we see it. You know, she tells uh, her roommate, "I can't. My parents can never know the amount of money I owe and the kinds of people I owe it to." You know, and it's all. You know, she's in this life now, and she has no escape valve because she can't go to her parents. I mean, it's it's an uncrossable bridge for her. Um, yeah. So again, I, I think that there there are sprinklings there that explain who she is and and why up to a point. The rest of it you can fill in. That's the other part of being. A, it it know, was interesting is we're del- we're delving so far into the unwilling that even more so than I, you know, you never know how far what to what to say and what not to say because you don't want to spoil the book. There are people out there thinking, oh my God, don't say too much about it because they really yeah, want no, to. Re- I'm trying to be I'm trying to be careful, David. I, I'm the same way. I hate to know what happens, but but. <laughs> But we are talking about the book, so we have to talk about a little bit of it. But, um, but now I won't give anything away. I promise. No, I, I and I don't think you have so far. But I, I'm thinking if I'm doing, if I'm going too far too by asking these questions that where you have to say things that that, that are details in the book that people don't know about yet. So you never know. Everybody's different. Some people will be like, okay, you can tell me a little bit, but don't. And then other people say, don't tell me a thing about the book before I read it. You know, and they and they and you understand that because we all don't want things spoiled for us. No, it's, it's too much of an investment. It's not just the price of the book, but it's the time you put into it and the faith that you give the writer. You know, and, and look, this I make a lot of promises uh, to my readers, at least you know, in the quiet of my own mind. And, and one of them is this: I understand this covenant. Um, people that come come to my books because they trust me to not waste their time and their money. And I spend the entirety of my time writing a book, doing everything I can to make sure that I don't do that. Because once that trust is broken. Yeah, they're not going to enjoy the book the way you want. They might hesitate to buy another book. So it, it's really important to, to recognize this relationship and not abuse it. And, and some writers get lazy, and they do. And, have uh, you ever had – and there, that begs the question. Have you ever had somebody write to you and say they don't like your books? Oh, yeah. 
yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What does that do? What does that do to you when you first read that? I mean, are you, obviously it affects them in some way, and even if it's a negative effect, does that still bother you? Not, not so much now. You know, early on it did. Um, it, it is an, an inescapable truth that you can't please everybody. Pure and simple. And there, there are people that will say, this is my favorite book in 50 years of reading. And I'll, somebody else will say, I had to put this down 30 pages in. You lost me because of this, that, or the other. My first book, The King of Lies, and I, I won't go into the whole details for this scene, but there was a local preacher in my hometown where it was set that completely misconstrued a sex scene that I wrote and thought it was a reference to some kind of demonic practice and led his congregation to the local library demanding that the book be removed from the shelf. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. And he emailed me to tell me that he had done this, and I explained to him how he completely misconstrued this sex scene. That, Did he uh, believe you? Said, yeah, yeah. I basically said to him, I said, look, this, this is what's actually happening in the scene. I'm, I'm sorry that you don't understand these references. You know, this It was all about the rush of blood and these other things, and he thought, um, not to get too graphic, but that the man was suckling blood from his wife's breast, and, and he thought it was a demonic thing, and he led his congregation to the library and uh, and took great joy in telling me that. And when I explained to him, I said, look, you know, this is what's actually happening to see. It's not what you, your wife seems to think it is, which was the case. Um, you know, he, he quickly changed tack and said, well, you, you use a lot of bad words. I said, I write crime fiction. Uh, when people stop speaking this way, I'll stop writing this way. And he said, I challenge you to change. And I said, I challenge you to leave your congregation back to the library and apologize to the people that work there. Um, and the lesson was, and I learned it early, don't engage um, with the people that take issue because the world is full of nitpickers and unhappy folks. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not worth my time. I mean, I can't please everybody. It's just that simple. That's a, that's fascinating though. I mean, to hear that and to realize that somebody could take it the wrong way like that. I wonder what he oh. thought. I wonder, besides that, what he thought of your writing. I have no idea. He he couldn't get past the uh, apparent demonic reference and the foul language. Um, I bet he must have hated the Exorcist then. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, you know, and and, he, and I know where his church is. I mean, he, he runs a, a church locally here in town. I mean, I know who he is even to this day. And look, he he's following his convictions and power to him. But it was just a misunderstanding. You know, what makes me laugh are the really harmless mistakes that usually I catch. So, for instance, in Iron House, my fourth novel, there's a reference and a mistaken reference to a 1965 Ford GTO instead of a Pontiac GTO. And I caught it in uh, early edits, you know, early um, copy edits, and sent a note to the house, and somehow the note fell through the cracks. And when the hardcover came out, it referenced this 1965 Ford GTO. I still get emails about this car. I mean, the book came out in 2011. Um, most new readers are reading it in trade paperback, which was corrected, or ebook, which was corrected. But people are still finding old hardcovers and emailing me about two or three times a year. I'll get an email about, <laughs> you know, I got the car wrong. And that makes me laugh, you know, it, it, it really does. But, um. And you know what's weird? I, ha I have that book right by my bedside. I had it at my bedside for years. I don't know why I never moved the book. I, I must oh. like your writing that much that I, that I, now I'm going to go check in the book and see what it says. <laughs> well, you know, my, I, lo I love the, uh, you know, I, I love some of the, the fun compliments I get. And I, I, 
I think I remember this correctly. I think David Baldassi said this to me once. I was having dinner with him, uh, actually, at John Grisham's house. It was a hell of a fun night. And I wow. just met David, and he said, um, my problem with you, John, is that my wife spends more time in bed with you than she does with me. <laughs> and he was just talking about she likes to read my books in bed. Wow. And really kind about it and, um, you know, joking about it. Um, but I love stuff like that, you know, when, when people say really kind of heartfelt, humorous, uh, kind words. David Baldassi, I, when I went to a signing of his one time, he was hysterical. The man should have been a stand-up oh, yeah. comic. He, he's yeah. really has the, the most wonderful sense of humor. And he can make you feel so good when he's doing it and, because he's such a good person. Well, let me, let me tell you what's amazed me about this whole, I'm going to call it the commercial fiction space, but it's really kind of the, the mystery thriller scene because I don't interact with a lot of other fiction writers. But uh, the people that I've gotten to know since I've done this that operate at the highest levels, people like Grisham and Baldacci and Patricia Cornwell and you know, some of these others, you know, that I'm not quite at that level yet or even close, but I hope to be, um, you know, they're, they're unfailingly gracious. I mean, just Right as the rain, I've never had a bad moment with any of them, um, and they're they're giving, they're supportive. It's uh, it's a really great community of writers. It, it truly is. There's only there's one last thing I want to ask you about, and that's the cliff diving. And I'm yeah. fascinated by the, your characters are obsessed with cliff diving. Some of them, and I wonder where that came from. And and have you ever dived off a cliff? No, no, but I can tell you exactly where it came from. So um, keep in mind, the book is set in 1972. So, you know, part of the challenge for me and the fun was how do you write uh, fast-moving plots without cell phones, right? You need to move a character from point A to point B today. Boom, he gets a phone call, and he's off in a different direction. Well, you know, they didn't have cell phones in 1972. So that was kind of fun trying to, you know, drive the plot without the modern technologies that we have. But the other part of writing in 1972 is to very subtly make it feel like 1972 without beating the reader over the head. You know, so that's about some of the really fun references, like what was the most popular movie or two, you know, in that month in 1972. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Godfather 2, I think. And what, uh, you know, what restaurant chains were then and popular that are gone now, um, it, but there's also other things, like, for instance, in, in 1972, um, one of the most popular international sports going was high diving. And I don't know if you grew up watching Wild World of Sports. And I yes. guess it was on ABC. But, you know, every Saturday, Wild World of Sports. And, and high diving was a big part of it. And in 1972, the world champion was some guy from Venezuela who dove from a height 15 feet higher than this quarry wall that, that these kids uh, dare each other to dive from. So, so I, part of it was making it feel reminiscent of 1972 and you know, have that verisimilitude, but but also the, the cliff plays a very big part in this story. Now, keep in mind, this the story is about what it takes to go from boy to man in this one particular family in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1972. And the older brother who went to Vietnam is the only person that's ever made a dive and lived from 115 feet up at the top of this quarry cliff. And we know from the story that he did it because he was being drafted to Vietnam. He was terrified of dying, and he dove to prove that he couldn't dive. And literally, he comes up from the dive and says, let the Viet Cong touch that. And um, his other brother, the one who goes for three tours and comes back from prison, uh, you know, at some point in the story, he makes the dive, and, and we later find out his reasons for doing it. I, I won't give them away because I think they're pretty important. And throughout the novel, here's this young brother, Gibby, who's trying to 
prove to himself that he's a man and his desire to dive off this cliff to match his brother's feats uh, is counterbalanced by his absolute conviction that he'll die if he does it. So, you know, it, it, does that make him a man? Does registering, uh, you know, for the Marines signing up, does that make him a man? Well, what, what is it and what lessons do we learn throughout the book and what does he learn at the end from this brother that comes home? And so, you know, the cliff serves a lot of roles. I mean, it's... Um, it's, it's a great setting. It's very visual, uh, and at the same time, it has all these other elements that made it a lot of fun to write. Well, I, I can only imagine out there. There's all these people now wondering, uh, when listening to this interview, fascinated. I'm wanting to read this book, <laughs> and I would, well, I, I would too. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Okay. But I want to mention one time that it does come out February 2nd. I, this interview may air a little before that or after that. I'm not sure which yet. But I just want to let everybody know it will be available on February 2nd. Now, is it going to be on audio? It is on audio. I love the uh, narrator, and they very kindly asked me to, to make some comments at the uh, at the end of the audio version, explaining a little bit about where the idea for the story came from and, and what led me to write it. So what, how, I'm pleased with the audio. How how weird is that to hear your books on audio for the first time? It's weird. It's, it's weird because it is the first time, and it just happened today. I, I've not been given a, a hard uh, copy of the audio yet, but they, they sent a link this afternoon. I just listened to it um, just to my little bit at the end about two hours ago because I had no idea how I sounded. Uh, it, was, it was weird. Well, that's interesting. Well, the book, again, is called The Unwilling, and I should mention it's out from St. Martin's Press is the one publishing it. I don't know if I mentioned that before. You also got a thing from Harlan Coben. I love Harlan Coben. Harlan Coben, yeah, he's, makes, he's another one makes it look so easy. <laughs> he does, and he, he's also another guy that's right as the rain. I mean, I've gotten to know him a little bit. He's He's been just super awesome in every encounter I've had with him. He's a really nice guy. He is, he is. And so are you, and this has been an absolute joy. And uh, I, I can't wait to finish the book now. <laughs> I literally, yeah. Well, you know, shoot me, shoot me a, a you know text or an email if you want to when you're finished. Um, Absolutely. I, or I'll get on the phone if you want to just carry on this conversation. The two of us, I'd, I'd love to get your take on it. Yeah, wonderful. And 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 it's just been a thrill again. And I don't I don't even know how many years it's been since I've talked to you. It's got to be fifteen. Uh, I feel like it's been a while. Yeah, I think it goes way back. I mean, maybe maybe even King of Lies. Wow, it, time just flies when you're when you're having fun. Yeah, it does. And this I'm has been David's run. Book Talk, and we'll, we will talk to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover David English. Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you. And we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.